Lord God, we do love you and we do truly need you. Every hour of, of our lives, Lord God, we need you. We need your love. We need life that you alone are able to give. We need your mercy, Lord God. We need your salvation. Lord, we need your help. And so, Lord, we pray as we come to read from your word and from the gospel of Matthew, the book of Matthew. Lord, we ask for your help. Would you pour out the helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with us, to help us understand the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's words in that great teaching? Would you help us apply it to our lives? And Lord, I pray this morning we might understand and grow in, in appreciation of our need of a saviour in the Lord Jesus Christ. Convict us, Lord. Move in our hearts that we might truly know and cry out that we need Jesus to save us. And I thank you for the salvation on offer in Jesus Christ, a gift of grace, a gift of, of unmerited favour, a gift that we don't deserve. And Lord, we praise you for the gift of grace that we have received as Christians. Entry into the eternal kingdom of heaven by means of Jesus's righteousness. We are so grateful, Lord God. And I just pray that as I preach this morning, your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts to awaken us to praise you for the salvation you have won for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a church, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew and we've been reading the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever ever preached. Jesus Christ goes onto a mountainside. He sits down as his disciples gather around him and Jesus opens his mouth to teach them. And um, We love this passage of scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. And the section we'll be reading today from Matthew chapter 5 is powerful, it's challenging, it's convicting. And what this section of scripture does is it sets out God's moral standards for our lives. Jesus, in this section on the Sermon on the Mount, reveals the requirement of righteousness in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So do you want to find out this morning, how can you enter the kingdom of heaven? What is required of you to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, listen in to this passage of scripture and, and you know what when I read this passage of scripture it humbles me it convicts me it, it, in some ways it floors me it it just reveals how much I need Jesus Christ and need his saving grace in my life and so I pray as I read this to you now you also would be humbled and and even spiritually floored as you realize how much you need Jesus in your life uh, so I'm going to read to you. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5 and I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 to 48. Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 to 48. And as always, the scripture will appear on the screen as I read. Matthew 5 verses 17 to 48. Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the, and all the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said, uh, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In that long passage that I've just read to you, I want to draw your attention to verse 20 and verse 48. In verse 20, Jesus says this, 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying in verse 20, there is a requirement of righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven. There is a requirement of goodness to enter heaven. And it's very high. The requirement is very high. You know, if you read that passage, Jesus has spent verses 17 to 19 emphasising and upholding the Old Testament law. He says in verse 18, doesn't he? Not an iota nor a dot will pass away from the law until heaven and earth pass away. So he's emphasising the importance of the Old Testament law. And then in verse 20, he lands this bombshell that our righteousness must must exceed, must surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, I want you to imagine that you're one of Jesus's Jewish, Jewish disciples and you're listening to the Sermon on the Mount and you hear Jesus talk about the law. In, in such bold terms, it, it's a huge emphasis Jesus is bringing in, in upholding the Old Testament law in these verses. And you'd be thinking to, imagine you're a Jew, I think you'd be thinking to yourself, wow, the law sets a very high standard of righteousness. And those Pharisees and those scribes, they're always extremely thorough and they're also detailed in living out the law and instructing others to do the same. You'd be thinking, wow, Jesus believes in the law. And I know the Pharisees and the scribes believe in in the law because they're always talking about how important it is that we keep the law in the Old Testament. But then Jesus says something extraordinary. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. I can imagine in that moment, as Jesus is preaching, there's this eerie silence. I think Jesus would have said verse 20 and then paused as all the people in the crowd consider themselves in comparison to the Pharisees and the scribes. And and imagine again that you're a Jew in this crowd. Your thought would be, wow, not even the Pharisees and the scribes are hitting Jesus's standard of righteousness. How do I stand any hope at all? This is a bombshell in verse 20. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. And he emphasises this point. He makes this point by referring to six examples. The first example is about murder and anger. The second example is about adultery and lust. He talks about divorce. He talks about oath taking. He talks about retaliation. And he talks about loving your neighbour and loving your enemies. And in each example that Jesus gives in this in this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does the same thing. He says, you thought the standard was here. You thought this was the standard of righteousness required by the law. And this is what the Pharisees and the scribes have been teaching, that, that if, you, if you reach this standard, then you're a good person in God's sight. But I tell you the truth. This is what Jesus says. You thought this was the standard. In reality, the standard of righteousness is far higher and far 
greater. You see, when he talks about murder, he, he says you thought the standard was just don't murder anyone. But actually, the standard was don't even have anger in your heart towards someone that might lead to murder a long way down the line. You know, this is the standard you thought. But this is actually Jesus's moral requirement. This is actually the standard of righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven or on adultery. And last, you thought that the standard was just don't sleep with someone other than your spouse. But actually, the standards don't even think lustfully about another woman or, or another person. All six examples do exactly the same thing. You thought the standard was here, it's actually up here. And then, having gone through those six examples, he ends with verse 48. And if you thought verse 20 was hard hitting, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. If you thought that was a hard hitting verse, consider verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What standard of righteousness does Jesus Christ require of us to enter the kingdom of heaven? Perfection. What Jesus is saying in verse 48 is that the Christian life is meant to reflect the perfection of God, our Father in heaven. We, we, we love our God. He is upright in all his ways. In all his decrees, he is good. He, he is a good, good father. We've already sung that this morning, speaking about the goodness of our father, speaking of the, about the perfection of our father. And so just as God, our father, is good and perfect in all his ways, so Christians are supposed to live perfect lives as well. And what Jesus is saying is, if we don't live perfect lives, we're not worthy to enter into the courts of the kingdom of heaven. If the king is perfect, if God our father is perfect, how can imperfect people be worthy to enter into his kingdom? We cannot. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? It means I am in big, big trouble. And probably you as well. If the standard of righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven is perfection, the perfection that mirrors the perfection of our Father in heaven, then I am in big, big trouble. My main point this morning in this sermon, and I think the main point Jesus is making in these verses in the Sermon on the Mount is this. You cannot meet the standard of righteousness God requires to enter the kingdom of heaven. You have not met God's standard of righteousness required. And you will not meet Jesus's standard of righteousness. You will consistently fall short. Sobering words. Sobering challenge. My main point this morning, you cannot meet the standard of righteousness God requires to enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's look in detail at the ways we fall short. Let's look at those six examples that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter five.
So he starts in verses 21 to 26 by talking about murder and anger. The end of verse 21 reads like this. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And so we thought, or the Jews thought, Jesus's crowd thought, as long as we haven't stabbed anyone, we're okay. As long as we haven't murdered anyone directly, then um, we're all right. We won't be liable to judgment. But Jesus then reveals it's not just the outward act of murder. It's also inward anger that is sinful and falls short of Jesus's righteous requirement. Jesus says in verse 22, doesn't he? Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now we know that every murder begins with anger. Someone gets angry at somebody else and and that anger um, sets deep within someone's heart and that anger grows and soon that anger rules over them. Their actions are not determined by by good moral thought. No, rather this anger at someone else has taken over them. And so in rage and anger at this person, they take another person's life. And although we, most of us at least, I've never gone on that full journey. We've never gone the whole way. We've, we've never felt anger and then ultimately that anger has led us to murder someone. We have experienced that same anger that Jesus is speaking about here and that Jesus describes as sinful. If you're honest with yourself, if you examine your past, if you examine your history, you'll, you'll recognise that you have felt deep anger towards other people in the past. Now, we haven't murdered anyone necessarily, but we find other ways of releasing that anger. So in verse 22, Jesus speaks about insults. We express our anger not with murder, but but by insulting people sometimes, sometimes to their face, sometimes behind their backs. Or another way we express that anger is by calling someone a fool. Says that in verse 22 as well. In fact, the end of verse 22 is a scary, scary verse. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so I invite you to examine yourself this morning. When was the last time you got angry? Who have you insulted? Who have you called a fool? Did you call them a fool to their face or did even worse, did you do it behind their back? That anger of heart is the same anger of heart that grows into murder, that grows into murder in the murderous heart. And so we need to recognise this morning that we are guilty of this sin. We need to confess our sin, confess the anger that we felt in our hearts at various times. You know, all sorts of things make us angry and they're silly, often silly things, small things that cause us to be angry in our hearts and insult people and say things that are that unfair. And so we need to seek God's forgiveness, recognise that we've done things wrong, confess to God our anger that's been in our hearts. And Jesus gives two practical ways in this passage that we should change our behaviour in order that we express our anger in a righteous way, that we don't sin in our anger. He, He says, when you come and bring an offering, 
don't offer your offering if you're angry with your brother and we can apply this to the communion table we take communion as a church together we break bread together and we we drink wine together to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection and we can apply this passage to communion and say if you're coming to communion to remember Jesus' death and you realize that actually you're very angry with your brother or maybe that your brother will be angry at you instead of taking communion which would be hypocrisy you are to to actually go and be reconciled to your brother before you take communion together that's part of our process it's why when we gather we take communion because there's that opportunity to be reconciled together before we eat Jesus' second example is about going to court. And Jesus says, on your way to court, settle your arguments, settle your anger, speak with your accuser outside of court. Otherwise, you might be thrown in jail and left there until you've paid your debt. And so we recognise this morning that it's not just murder that was wrong. This was the standard we thought was the moral standard of righteousness. But actually, it's anger in our hearts at brothers and sisters in Christ and other human beings. That's the true moral standard. And if we have been angry and if we have insulted and if we have called people you fool, we have fallen short of the righteous requirement of God. Secondly, in verses 27 to 30, Jesus speaks about adultery and lust. Again, we thought God's standard was here. We thought as long as we don't physically um, have sex with someone other than our spouse, we've hit the righteous requirement of the law. The Bible teaches that um, sex is for marriage, marriage between a man and a woman. And within a marriage, that's the only place where sex should take place. And and sex is a wonderful gift of God that he's given to us that that is enjoyable within marriage. Um, But any sex outside of marriage is the sin of adultery. And so that's where we thought the standard was. So long as we don't have sex with anyone who's not our husband or our wife, then we're okay. But Jesus says something hugely challenging in these verses. Actually, what goes on inside of you is equally sinful. He says in verse 28, doesn't he? I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is not just interested in what we do with our bodies. He's also interested in our hearts, what's going on inside of us. And so if you watch porn... You are committing adultery because you're watching that in order to get the pleasure to to look intently, to look lustfully at the people in that porn. If you dream and you think and you imagine sexual acts with others, you are committing the sin of adultery, according to what Jesus teaches, teaches here. If you check someone out whether you're walking past them in the street or you're looking at that their Facebook photos, if you're looking with that lustful intent, if you're checking someone out, For Jesus, that falls into the category of lust and adultery. And so Jesus takes the sin of lust very, very seriously, doesn't he? He suggests radical action. And and there's a form of exaggeration going on here, but it's meant to hammer home how serious the sin of lust truly is. He says in verse 29, tear your eye out. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better to go into heaven missing an eye or missing two eyes even rather than to be thrown into the fires of hell. And he says in verse 30, if, if, your ha- if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter into heaven with missing a hand than for your hand to cause you to fall into the fires of hell. You know, Jesus takes these sins of lust and adultery extremely seriously. 
And so we can't, we can't say that looking and thinking is okay. I've met quite a few people who, who, who think that. You know what? I, I have a friend who says, me and my missus, we have an agreement that to look and to think and imagine is fine as long as we don't actually do anything about it. Well, Jesus is disagreeing with that here in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's saying, if you're looking, if you're thinking, if you're imagining, you are lusting and you are committing adultery in your heart. And so we must confess our sin this morning. Confess our lustful hearts this morning. Confess that we have done wrong. And if necessary, we need to take radical action. We need to use accountability software. I'm several people's accountability partner and I have access. I get notifications if they look at things online which are inappropriate. We might need to delete a Facebook account even. We need to stop spending time with that person who is not your spouse you're having lustful thoughts about stop spending time with them it's in it's not helpful it's causing you to sin lustfully sin you got so jesus so it's really clear isn't it we we need to confess our sin and recognize that we fall short of jesus's righteous standard because of our lustful thoughts and we need to take radical action to to stop us falling into that sin those who lust commit adultery in their hearts and therefore do not meet jesus christ's righteous requirement Thirdly, in verses 31 to 32, Jesus speaks about divorce. And the Pharisees had taught the Jews that there were lots of reasons you could get a divorce. And our culture, in fact, teaches the same, really. There's lots of reasons you can get a divorce. If you're just not feeling for marriage anymore, you can get a divorce. If you found someone better, it's okay to get a divorce. Or, or if, if, if the marriage is, is causing you challenges and the marriage is holding you back and doing what you really want to do, then you can get a divorce. But Jesus teaches very clearly here in these verses, sexual immorality is the only grounds for seeking a divorce. If you get a divorce for any other reason, you are causing your spouse to commit adultery. And you yourself become an adulterer. If you marry someone who was previously divorced for any reason other than sexual immorality, Jesus takes a hard line on divorce. And that's because God loves marriage and takes marriage very seriously. And we here at Christchurch Barham, we take marriage very seriously. When, When two people get married, God joins them together in a spiritual and physical union. And we say during the marriage ceremony, quoting from Matthew chapter 19, what God has joined together, let no man separate. I love the King James language of this verse. What God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. And so at Christchurch Fairham, we fight for our marriages. Marriage is wonderful and full of joy. It really is a joy to share my life, to to walk with Rachel in all that we do and and to live together and, and enjoy all the benefits of marriage. But marriage also comes with challenges. And so we need to fight for our marriages, knowing that Jesus takes marriage very seriously and Jesus hates divorce. And so if you're listening to this this morning and you've had a divorce for any reason other than sexual immorality, You need to confess that to God and seek forgiveness, knowing that God is a God of mercy and a God of forgiveness. He will forgive you for past sin. 
And if you're now struggling in your marriage, then don't get a divorce, but but share your struggles, share share your challenge. As a church, we want to pray for you. We want to support you. We want to help you. We want to help you thrive in your marriage. And, and we know that marriage is challenging in many, many ways. And so part of the role of the church is to support each other and to build up the marriages and to help them, help married couples do so well together rather than get divorces. Another, you know, another bar that Jesus says, sets this is the righteousness righteous requirement of the law the the only reason to get a divorce is if your partner has been sexually unfaithful to you those are the only grounds to get a divorce fourthly in verses 33 to 37 jesus speaks about oaths he says you thought the standard was here he you thought the standard was you can take an oath, you can swear, but make sure you keep what you what you swear on. If you swear to do something, make sure you do it. But Jesus's righteous requirement is higher. Don't take oath at all, says Jesus. But whenever you open your mouth, let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is the real righteous requirement. When you say yes to something, you don't need to swear an oath. You just need to say yes and then do it. And if you say no, then don't do it. When Christians speak, what they speak should come to be a reality. We should not overpromise and underdeliver. In other words, mean what you say and follow through. And I know if I examine my life, there are many occasions where I've said I'm going to do something and then I've not done it. Or I've, I've done it. At a diff- I said I'd do it by this time and I've delivered it late. All sorts of ways in which my actions do not meet my words. Uh, there's, it's easy as a preacher, actually, and, and it's extremely dangerous for a preacher who, who says lots of wonderful words from the front. But do their actions actually meet the requirements of their words? Is the, are these things that I'm just saying or are these things that I'm truly trying to live, living out? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is Jesus's righteous requirement that our actions match our words. And if we fall short of that righteous requirement, as I do, uh, as, um, as I'm sure many of you do, we need to confess that. We need to ask God for forgiveness and we need to live faithfully where our words and our deeds match one another. Fifthly, in verses 38 to 42, Jesus speaks about retaliation. In verse 38, Jesus says, you thought the standard was to seek justice and retribution when someone does you wrong. You you thought when you'd be wronged, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In In other words, through a justice system, you can seek your revenge. But Jesus says, Jesus's righteousness calls for something truly radical. Jesus says, do not resist the evil one. Do not retaliate. Do not accuse the evildoer. Instead of accusing, instead of taking revenge, instead of retaliating, seek to bless the one who has done evil to you. Wow, this is countercultural. This is radical stuff. If people ask for money, give them even more money than they ask. If they ask for you to carry something, carry it even further than they ask you to carry it. 
Now, we must fight for justice on behalf of others, on behalf of those who are weak, on behalf of those who are poor, on behalf of those who cannot fight for their own justice. We as Christians must stand for justice and fight for justice on behalf of others. But when it comes to ourselves, we're to bless those who do us harm. Isn't that so, so radical to bless anyone who does harm to you, to be generous to those who beg? And if anyone asks to borrow something, to say, yes, of course you can have what you want. You thought the standard was take retribution, but actually the standard is to bless those who persecute you. Finally, sickly, in verses 43 to 47, Jesus talks about love, the radical love of the kingdom of heaven. You thought it was okay to love your friends and family, to love your neighbours? but to hate your enemies. That's what you thought the standard was. But Jesus in verse 44, no, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, let me ask you this morning, when was the last time you prayed for someone who had done you wrong? Or when was the last time you prayed for someone who you struggled to get on with? When was the last time you did something truly and radically loving for someone you didn't get on very well with, who someone who wasn't a friend or a family member. Jesus's point here uh, at the end of chapter five is extremely powerful. If you only love your friends and you only love your family members, then you're just the same as everybody else. That isn't radical, counter-cultural, God-like love. God the Father causes the rain to fall on the lands of the evil and the righteous. In order, in other words, even those who reject God, God provides for them and gives them food and shelter and the thing, all the things they have in life. God is still blessing even those who reject him. And yet we Christians, we only love people within the church or we only love our friends and family and we neglect and fail to love those who are outside the church. But no, Jesus says, no, that's not my righteous requirement. The line isn't here, it's up here. We need to love even our enemies. So I've whizzed through those examples and those verses. But I hope as I've gone through The righteous requirement of Jesus Christ, according to the Sermon on the Mount, we've started to be convicted of the ways we fall short. This is a humbling passage. This is a sorrowful passage. We should should feel a sadness at the way we've fallen short of what Jesus is speaking about here. There even should be a holy fear. Some of us should be thinking, I don't qualify. For the kingdom of heaven. I am not perfect as my father in heaven is perfect. My righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. You know, when I consider myself, I know that at times I have a short temper, that I am unnecessarily and unrighteously angry, and that in that anger I've spoken insults about people. I know that there is lustful intent in my heart. I know I've said things and not followed through on them. I've said, yeah, I'll do that. And then I've not done them or I've not hit the deadline that I set for myself. I know that sometimes I talk a really good game and don't live a really good game. 
I know that I've retaliated in my life, that I've taken revenge, that I've treated people poorly or I've treated people worse because they've done things to wrong me. And I know that I lack love for people, especially those people who I find annoying or, or I find to be an enemy in the sense that they've done wrong to me. I know I lack love for people. I treat my friends and others differently from time to time. I spend a lot more time blessing my friends and family than blessing those people who are kind of outsiders, who I don't consider to be my friends and family. I don't qualify. I don't meet Jesus' requirements in the Sermon on the Mount. If Jesus was here in the flesh preaching these words to me, I would be crying. I'd be devastated. I would be saying, Jesus, I haven't met that requirement. I, I must despair. I am not worthy to enter into the kingdom of heaven. My heavenly father is perfect and I am not. How can I be worthy to enter his kingdom? And so the question is, is there any hope? Is there any hope in these verses, in this sermon that Jesus has preached? I find the contrast fascinating, by the way. Jesus starts talking about the blissfully happy kingdom. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. He's, he's talking about being blissfully happy um, and he's talking about being poor in spirit. And then he, he, he brings this somberness where he's convicting people of their sin and the ways they fall short of Jesus's righteous requirement. And so the question is, is there any hope? And the answer is yes. In verse 17, the very first verse that we read this morning, there is hope. Because in verse 17, Jesus says, while all of you have fallen short of the righteous requirement of the law. When Jesus speaks of himself, he says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. Every single one of us, you, me, Every single person in history has fallen short of this righteous requirement that Jesus is spelling out here on the Sermon on the Mount, apart from one, only one. Jesus Christ fulfills the law. He lives out perfectly the righteous requirement of the law. And so I said earlier that the Sermon on the Mount or this section of the Sermon on the Mount can be described as a sermon about the perfect father. We are to be perfect in our behavior here on earth because our father in heaven is perfect and so this sermon is about how perfectly upright and glorious the father is in heaven but it's also a sermon on the perfection of the son because jesus christ says i have fulfilled the law and the prophets when i have failed when you have failed jesus succeeded where i have fallen short jesus has run ahead Jesus is the one who fulfills the law and the prophets, according to verse five. And having succeeded, having fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, Jesus in love went to the cross. He didn't go to the cross to die for his own sins, but he died for our sins. Jesus didn't have any sin. He had fulfilled the law. He had fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. So he didn't have any sins. He did not have to die for his own sins. No, instead, he died for our sins. If you read the Old Testament, 
the law required a sin offering and a guilt offering. So anyone who had sinned, anyone who was carrying guilt, had to go to the priest and bring a lamb. And the lamb would be sacrificed as a substitute. The lamb would be sacrificed on the altar as an atonement for sin. Symbolically, the lamb carried the punishment for sin that the sinners themselves deserved. Do you see? The punishment for sin is death. And so in the Old Testament, they bring a lamb and the lamb would die as a substitute, a symbolic substitute on the person's behalf that they might be forgiven for their sin and their sin might be atoned for. That's what happened in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Jesus is described as the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world once for all. And that means there is hope. A gift is offered to you and to me this morning. It's a gift of grace. It's a gift that none of us deserve. And this is the gift that Jesus takes my sin and dies as a substitute in my place. He dies the death that I deserved. And I receive the gift of forgiveness from God for my sin. I receive the gift of salvation from God, a gift of grace, one that I did not deserve. And I receive Jesus's righteousness so that I might enter into the kingdom of heaven. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven if your righteousness does not surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. And the only way to have that kind of righteousness is to receive it from Jesus Christ as a gift of grace. And so, yes, Jesus in these verses is calling us to live more righteous lives. He's calling us to to seek to reduce anger in our lives. He's calling us to live without lust in our lives. He's calling us to observe his commandments on divorce. He's calling us to observe his commandments about taking oaths, about speaking words that are true and following through on what we say. he's, He's calling us to live more holy lives. But that's a secondary understanding of this text. The primary, most important meaning of Matthew chapter 5 is that we realise that we've fallen a long way short of Jesus' righteous requirement. And therefore we are in desperate need of a saviour. And then Jesus reveals himself as that saviour. Jesus reveals himself as the one who is the fulfilment of the law and the prophets. And so that all who believe in Christ receive his righteousness as a gift of grace. You know, Christians, you've heard this before, but do not become dull to this message. Yes, you've heard it before, but isn't it amazing? Jesus died on the cross for my sins that I might be forgiven. And he rose again in glory that I might have eternal life. He clothes me in robes of righteousness so that I fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in order that I might become a citizen of heaven. I cannot enter the kingdom of heaven by my own righteousness, but with Christ's righteousness, I can. I can be perfect in my father's sight, just as God, my father in heaven is perfect. Do you know this, Christian? If you have received this gift by faith in Jesus Christ, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. You know, even if today or even if this week you've been 
full of anger. You've been raging inside if you've insulted lots and lots of people. Even if you've spent this week giving in to the sin of lust and looking at things that you shouldn't have looked at. Even if you've had a divorce in your past that was not on the grounds of sexual morality and breaks Jesus's law of divorce here on the Sermon on the Mount. Even if you've been swearing falsely all over the place. You've said to people, I swear on by heaven that I'll do that thing and then you've not followed through on it. Even if you've retaliated, if someone's done you wrong, you've sought to take revenge yourself. Even if you've not loved your enemies, even if you've not loved your neighbour, in fact, the gospel of grace, the good news of Christianity, the good news of grace means that God doesn't love you any less because when God looks at you, he does not see your righteousness. God's love for you does not depend on your deeds or works or your righteousness. No, no, when God looks at you, he sees Christ's righteousness. So even on your very worst of days, even on a day where you've neglected God in prayer, you haven't prayed, you haven't read your Bible, you've been angry at God all day, you haven't you haven't done anything righteous or anything holy, even on those days you are clothed in Christ's righteousness and so God's love is pouring out towards you, unfiltered, it, it, it's pouring out on you and you can come to him in prayer and he will receive you as a father because he loves you, not because of your own righteousness, because of Jesus' righteousness that has been given to you in the great exchange that happens on the cross. Isn't it glorious? Isn't it wonderful? This is good news. This is the good news we declare to the world. You can have forgiveness. You can be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can enter the kingdom of heaven through grace, by the gift of grace, a gift you don't deserve through faith. All you need to have is faith in Jesus Christ, faith in his life, death and resurrection from the dead. And you receive this free gift of grace. That, that means you stand in God's love forever and ever. And you never leave that amazing place of being in the love of the Father. Oh, I love it. I love it. So yes, let's seek to live out Jesus' commands in this passage. I, t- I do pray that we wouldn't be angry people or short-tempered people. I do pray we wouldn't be lustful people. I do pray that we wouldn't have divorces in our church. I do pray that we would we would speak words and follow through with the words that we say. I do pray that we wouldn't retaliate, but rather we would not resist the evil one and we would seek to be Christ-like in that way. I do pray that we would love our enemies deeply and wonderfully, that even our enemies might know the love of Christ by the way we treat them. But ultimately, and first... This is a passage about coming to our knees, confessing our shortcomings, realising that we don't hit the righteous righteous requirement of Jesus Christ and receiving forgiveness and receiving Jesus's righteousness. Jesus, our saviour, is the one who fulfills the law and the prophets and the one who gives us as a gift his righteousness to enter heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, we confess this morning that we have sinned. That we may not have murdered anyone, but we have been angry at people. We have called people fools. We have insulted others. Lord, we confess that we have lusted in our hearts. We may not have committed the sin of adultery in a physical Um, sexual way but we have committed the sin of adultery in our hearts by lusting after others by looking at things we shouldn't have looked at and having an intent in our heart that is not honoring to our spouse if we have one or to you if we are still single lord some of us may need to confess sin of divorce and breaking apart what you have put together 
Lord, we confess too that we have spoken words and then not followed through in our actions, that we have taken oaths and sworn falsely even, Lord God. Lord, we confess that we have retaliated, that we have done ill to people because they have harmed us. And Lord, we confess that we have not loved others as you have loved them. Lord, you love even those who are opposed to you. You pour out rain, common grace upon all people. And Lord, we're not like that. We tend to love our friends and family and fail to love our enemies. Lord, forgive us for our sin. We declare today that we fall short of your righteous requirement. And we ask for the free gift of grace of Jesus's righteousness. We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven by our own righteousness, but by Christ's righteousness we can. And so, Lord, we thank you for the gift of grace, these beautifully white clothes that we are robed in when we believe in Jesus, these robes of righteousness that mean we can enter heaven. And Lord, we rejoice in Christ, our Saviour. We thank you for his perfection. We thank you for your perfection, Heavenly Father. And we thank you for Jesus's perfection that we enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we thank you, Lord, I pray for anyone who has not believed in Christ. May they realise this morning that they fall short and that they will not be accepted by God unless they believe in Christ. And Lord, I pray you would give them the gift of faith now, Lord God, that they would have faith in Jesus for salvation so that they might enter into the kingdom of heaven. Please, Lord, bring salvation to those watching this morning, we pray in Jesus name. Amen.